1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. While you're turning there, and uh, I'm getting settled here, let me tell you a story from the third century about the Desert Fathers. Now, maybe you don't know who the Desert Fathers are. A group of monks who lived in the uh, deserts of Egypt. And uh, one story that we have from the sayings of these fathers, a book that has been passed down to us, tells uh, this narrative. A, a young monk came to an older one by the name of Father Macarius. And he said, uh, Father, give me a word. And Father Macarius said, I want you to go to a cemetery and I want you to insult the dead. And so this young monk uh, listened to what Father Macarius told him to do. And he went to the cemetery that day and he threw stones at the dead and verbally insulted them. And then he came back to Father Macarius and he said, okay, I did what you said. And Father Macarius asked him, okay, when, when you insulted them, did they say anything to you? And the younger monk said, no, of course not. And he said, okay, I have one other thing for you to do. Uh, I want you to go back to the cemetery and this time I want you to praise the dead. And so this younger monk obeyed and went back and he praised the dead, calling them saints and righteous ones. And then he returned once again to Father Macarius and said, okay, I did what you said. And Father Macarius said, okay, did they respond to you this time? And of course, the younger monk said, no, they remained silent. And then Father Macarius said these words. He said, you know how you insulted them and they did not reply and how you praised them and they did not speak? So you too, if you wish to be saved or delivered from the tyranny of criticism and the praise of man, you must do the same and become a dead man. Like the dead, take no account either of the scorn nor the praises of man. Well, what, a, what a lesson uh, Father Macarius was teaching this, this younger monk. He was teaching him the importance of detachment from the praises and the criticism of, of others. So my question today is, how do, how do we do that? Um, how do we live that way? And I want to suggest to you that the passage we're going to read in just a moment answers that question for us. Uh, so before we read it together out loud, um, let me lead us in prayer, and let's ask for the Lord to help us and give us understanding. Lord, we confess this morning how badly we need to hear you speak to us. And at the same time, we confess how prone we are to only hear what we want to hear. And so we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to illumine your word to our hearts. Give us understanding and hearts to receive all that you would say to us. And we ask that you would show us Christ in all of his saving mercy. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 4, let's pick it up in verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Remember that the church in Corinth is divided. It was originally planted by the Apostle Paul, and then others came along after him, men like Apollos, Cephas, Peter. And so different members had different connections with different ministers. But instead of being thankful for the different ministries of these various men, parties developed, and the church was being torn apart by these divisions. Now, the Apostle Paul has already in this letter shown the Corinthians, as we've seen, that this division is all driven by pride, the sin of pride. The, The Corinthians were puffing themselves up, trying to make a name for themselves, try to make themselves look significant and important by boasting in a particular leader, by boasting in men. And they were caught up in this endless cycle of one-upmanship. And so as uh, Paul is continuing his treatment plan and as he seeks to put an end to this prideful boasting, In this passage, Paul, first of all, teaches the church how it's to view its gospel ministers. That's verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul teaches how gospel ministers and really how all Christians should view themselves. And then in verse 5, Paul teaches us the all-important lesson that at the end of the day, the only opinion that really counts is God's. Okay, so let's work our way through these these three lessons, beginning with the first. Okay, so to a church, boasting in men to to really show that they're something, that they're significant, Paul writes about how the church ought to view its gospel ministers. So take a look at verse 1. He says, This is how one ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, some of the Corinthians boasted in Paul. Remember that group, I am of Paul. But others berated Paul. Uh, We actually have an example of some of the things that were being said about the Apostle Paul and the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 10. And there we read that people in Corinth were saying things like this. Look, Paul's letters, they're, they're weighty and strong, but when he's with us, Physically, his words are of no account. In other words, they were saying, you know, when Paul writes, he he talks a big game, but when he shows up in person, he is a lightweight. Why would anybody want to listen to the Apostle Paul? That's just one example of the kind of judgmental comments that were being thrown out against the Apostle Paul. Now, Before we come to how Paul responds to this, just as an aside, uh, isn't it helpful 
to see even a New Testament church that has been planted by the Apostle Paul himself struggling in this kind of way. It's kind of a mess, isn't it? I I find it helpful because, frankly, it sets my expectations straight. Maybe there are some here this morning who are offended at the failure of the church to, to live up to its message. You might be struggling with failure or the hypocrisy or the insecurity or the judgmentalism that you have witnessed firsthand in the church. And we need to say, you're, you're right to be disturbed by that. Right? Paul was disturbed by that. But when scripture shows us the flaws of the church, as it does here in 1 Corinthians, it aims not only to confront and correct those flaws, but also to teach us to exercise patience with the church as we witness those flaws. It aims to remind us that the struggles of the church today are are really the same as the struggles of the church yesterday in a lot of ways. And so we really shouldn't be surprised that the church has its share of failure and setback. It means, well, first of all, it means we all fit right in, don't we? People who don't always live consistently with the message that we profess. Now, by, by all means, let's Let's critique the church of her failure to be all that she is called to be. But let's not be surprised when the same old struggles that plagued the church in Paul's day rear their ugly head in the church today. Instead, here's what I want to encourage us to do. Let's learn to practice patience with one another, recognizing that while we take you know, great offense in the flaws that we see so glaringly in others that it might just be the case that we don't see the flaws in ourselves that are just as glaringly obvious. And so we practice patience. The church always struggles this side of glory because the church is made up of sinners like you and me. That was true in Paul's day and it's true today. Now, coming back to the passage in Corinth, they had been misjudging Paul and and these other ministers. And so Paul aims to correct their thinking carefully. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, We ought to regard him and the other leaders whom the Corinthians have been fighting over, first as servants of Christ, and secondly as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, let's think about those two terms, picking up servants first. That word servant actually is not the normal word that's used for servant in the New Testament. The word Paul uses here referred to at one time a galley slave, uh, an under rower, right? A person who is in the bottom of the ship, chained to their oar, pulling and pushing their oar to the drum of the overseer. Now, by the time that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this term could refer more generally to a servant, but it still carried the connotation of menial, uh, humble labor. And Paul is saying this is how we ought to think about gospel ministers. This is what a gospel minister is, if you like, a galley slave pulling his oar to the beat of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says he and other ministers are stewards. It's a 
It's another word picture, this time of a household servant. A steward was entrusted with the resources of that estate and was responsible to steward those resources well for the for the well-being of those who belonged to that household. And ministers, Paul says, are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when the New Testament speaks about mystery, you know, don't you, that it's, it's not referring to mystery as we commonly think about it today. It's not like a mystery novel where there's this puzzle that we have to work out and solve. It refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ formally given and revealed in promises and symbols, but has now been revealed personally through Jesus Christ and through him to the apostles and written down in Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul himself has talked about this back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians in verse 7. He wrote, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then in verse 10, He says, these things he has revealed to us by his spirit. Okay, so that's what what mystery means. It has to do with something hidden but has been revealed, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul calls ministers stewards of the mysteries of God, he's he's giving a a kind of job description. He is saying that this is the minister's fundamental task like a steward in an ancient household gospel minister is entrusted with the mysteries of God okay so what does that mean well it means to to teach and to preach the gospel to feed the members of the household to supply them with the resources of the word of God for their nourishment and good now there may be I was just talking to one of you this morning about this. There may be a thousand other uh, responsibilities demanding a minister's attention. But if the minister becomes distracted from this, they are not fulfilling their responsibility to steward the mysteries of God faithfully. So here's what you ought to expect from gospel ministers. To open up the scriptures to explain the scriptures, to teach the whole counsel of God, to not add anything to it or to take anything away from it, to apply it to the minds and hearts and lives of God's people and to preach Christ from the word of God. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying so far. Ministers, they're they're under rowers, pulling the oar according to the beat of King Jesus, the master's drum. And they are stewards called to care for the household of faith by stewarding well the mysteries of God for the good of its members. Now, the big idea here, I think, in the context of 1 Corinthians and what Paul is responding to is this. That gospel ministers are servants in the church, but the church is not their master. So we work for Jesus pulling or at his command, serving the church with his word, according to his design. We serve the church, but it's Jesus Christ and not the church who is our master. 
And that leads then, I think, to the idea of ministers as stewards. Ministers do not serve to enact the will of the congregation. They serve to obey the will of Christ. And his will for ministers is to faithfully steward the word of God and the gospel. Okay, so they are required to be faithful, trustworthy, and diligent in that task. Now, to be sure, there are other fundamental and essential responsibilities for gospel ministers, but this is the measure of a steward's quality. Is he faithful to his master? That's the key question. Now, you can understand how challenging this teaching was for the Corinthians who were rating ministers by standards of rhetoric and charisma and facility of speech, their ability to maintain the attention of a crowd and so forth. They wanted, they wanted a celebrity, not a galley slave or household steward. But the ministers God uses, the ministers that the church needs, are servants of Christ and faithful stewards, dispensing the mysteries of God, the word of God, diligently for the nourishment and the good of God's people. Okay, so here is how a church should view ministers, slaves of Christ and household stewards. They're called to serve the church at the decree and the command of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and master of the church. But then secondly, Paul, Paul tells us not only how the church ought to view gospel ministers, but now he tells us how gospel ministers and really how all Christians ought to view themselves. So take a look with me at verses 3 and 4. And notice, first of all, that there are three courtrooms in verses 3 through 5. We're going to look at the first two in verses 3 and 4 and come to the third in verse 5 in just a few minutes. Um, now, the first courtroom uh, that Paul mentions, you see it, it it's the courtroom of public opinion. Paul writes, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Uh, Paul has been tried in the court of public opinion at Corinth. Uh, after listening to him, some have sided with him in an unhealthy way saying, uh, I'm of Paul. Others, on the other hand, have sided against him and have chosen to pick his ministry apart with their critical judgmentalism. That's the court of public opinion that Paul is talking about. Uh, but then there's another courtroom. Catch it, Paul mentions not just the court of public opinion in these verses. He then mentions the court of his own private judgment. He says, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, Paul cares very little if he is judged by the Corinthians, but he goes even a step further than that. He won't even judge himself. It's as if he's saying, look, I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, and I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. Uh, in the courtroom of his own conscience, while he's unaware of anything specific, that would condemn him, he knows that his own private verdict, his own estimation, his own 
self-assessment is hardly any more important than that of the biased Corinthians' judgment of him. Okay, so I want to make sure we notice how Paul is dealing with the verdict of of both courts here. He said in in the first verse of this chapter, as a a servant, as a steward, he, he has a job to do. But with regard to that role, he does not put much stock in what the Corinthians say about him. He doesn't even value his own judgment of himself. Paul serves free from the tyranny of the courtrooms of public opinion and his own private conscience. Paul's identity, in other words, cannot be tied to people's opinion of him, including his own. Okay, so here's my question. As, as I listen to this, as I take all this in and, and hear what Paul is saying in these verses, here's my question. I want to know, okay, Paul, how do you do this? How do you, how do you reach this point? Because wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be free from the tyranny of other people's opinions about you, unconcerned about their judgments concerning you? Or how about freedom from the tyranny of, of self-reproach or blinding arrogance? How can we be free of those things in the way that Paul appears to be free of them here? And be able to say, I I don't care if you judge me, and I don't even trust my own judgments about me. Here's how gospel ministers ought to view themselves, neither driven by the opinions of man, nor enslaved by the demands of personal ego. And here's a model, I think, of how we would all like to view ourselves unconcerned or unmoved by what people have to say about us, whether it be uh, praise or unjustified criticism, and not for a moment depending upon our own judgment of ourselves. Okay, how can we get there? Well, first of all, let's, let's be honest. But this is, this is a really hard thing to achieve because don't we often find ourselves frankly, cowering in fear at others' judgments of us or deeply wounded when we, when we hear them? Aren't we easily moved and swayed, maybe even uh, worried by what others will say about us, living under the tyranny of our own internal critic? Isn't it hard to do what Paul seems to do in these verses? I think so. So that leads us to the third lesson that I want us to think about here. He's he's told us how the church ought to view its gospel ministers, how gospel ministers and all Christians ought to view themselves, which leads us to this third lesson, because now he tells us that what really matters, what really counts, is how God views us. Here's the third courtroom in our passage. This is actually the only assessment that truly matters. See it in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, Paul says. 
He is, in a sense, echoing the words of, of Jesus, do not judge, that you might not be judged. Words that are often, you know, ripped out of their context and misused today. Often they're taken to mean that we should not make moral judgments. Right? Uh, moral judgments, we're told, are, are off limits. Don't, don't judge, don't say something's right or wrong, because to do that would be judgmental and unloving. Well, that's interesting because that line of thinking in and of itself is self-defeating, isn't it? Because it is a moral judgment. But that surely wasn't what Jesus was saying, and it's surely not what the Apostle Paul is after here. Because if you look at the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll see Paul making some very strong moral judgments, urging the church to practice church discipline in the case of sexual immorality. And if you just glance ahead to chapter 5, verse 3, look at the language he uses. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Okay, so when Paul says not to pass judgment before the time, he is not saying to the church, don't make moral judgments. Neither is he saying, don't make doctrinal or theological judgments. Later on in chapter 14, when he writes about the ministry of the prophets at the church of Corinth, he says that two or three at the most should speak and the rest should weigh what is said. Now that word translated weigh is actually the word to judge. Paul is telling them you, you need to judge what is being said. You need to exercise theological discernment to weigh and to judge the truthfulness of what is being taught. And so let's be clear about this. Paul isn't saying don't make moral judgments about what is right and wrong. He isn't saying don't make theological or doctrinal judgments about what is true and false. Actually, the Bible commands us to do both. And a large part of Christian maturity is learning to do both in a spirit of humility, with an exercise of discernment that is driven and guided by the final rule of God's word. But Paul is rebuking the Corinthians here for developing a standard of their own. Not a, not a biblical standard, but a, but a standard based on personal tastes and preferences. And then acting as judge and executioner over all and any who do not measure up to those man-made standards. And to that line of thinking, he says, do not pronounce judgments like that before the time. That is, before the Lord Jesus returns. Because when Jesus comes back and the final courtroom is called into session... He will judge by the perfect standards of God's word. In fact, on that day, Paul is, Paul is saying, you will find yourself no longer sitting in the bench as a self-appointed judge. No, you will personally find yourself in the dock, summoned to give an account. And so on that day, Paul says, the things hidden in the darkness will be brought into the light. The hidden purposes of the heart will be revealed. This is one of the reasons why our judgmentalism really proves to be foolish in the end, doesn't it? 
Because we don't know people's hearts. Only God does. So how careful we should be then about impugning the motives of others when all that we see is the outward appearance. Jesus and no one else can and will expose the secret motives of the heart and the things kept in the darkness will be brought into the light. Isn't that a sobering reality? On that day, Jesus will do it. And so God wants us to be mindful of that final great day and that last courtroom, the verdict of which is the only one that really carries any weight. And so I think if we were more aware and, and we began to live in light of eternity, I think that would profoundly shape how we day by day live alongside of one another as the people of God. Now, if you look at the end of verse 5, this is really where I was trying to, to take us this morning with that opening story. Because in, at the end of verse 5, you'll see how it was that Paul was able to live free from both the opinions of others and his own assessment of himself. How he was able to live free from the courtrooms of public opinion and even hold his own self-assessment very loosely. Here's how he managed to do that. He was looking for the commendation of God. He lived to please the Lord alone. Almighty God, his opinion, is the only one that ultimately counts. Then each one, he says, will receive his commendation from God. And so Paul had learned to, to labor and serve for the well-done, good and faithful servant of his Redeemer. He, he was seeking to live so as to please God. No one else's opinion, not even his own, carries final weight with him. And so the governing question in, in Paul's life was not, what will others think or what do I think, but what does God think? Will this service receive the well-done, good and faithful servant of my master. You see, Paul is highlighting for us the simplifying and clarifying principle that really needs to be at the heart of our Christian lives. And the principle is this, that we serve only one master. We serve only one master. So how do we learn self-forgetfulness so that we're not enslaved by the opinions of others, nor enslaved by our own opinions about ourselves. I imagine here with a group this size that people struggle with both of those issues, being enslaved by the opinions of what others might think about us, or perhaps we have an internal critic that overanalyzes and leaves us in a state of constant fear of failure. How can we be set free from both of those tyrannies to know the joy of self-forgetfulness? Well, it is knowing that only one opinion matters in the end. What does God say about the work of my head and my heart and my hands? What will Jesus say at his appearing over the work 
of his stewards uh, who, who ought to have been faithful in the household of God? What will he say about the, the labors of under rowers who ought to have been pulling the oars to the beat of their master's drum? You see, when the commendation of God matters most, it really won't matter if men lionize you or demonize you and your own opinion couldn't matter any less. Now, just so we're clear, let's make sure that there isn't any misunderstanding as we're thinking here about the final judgment. If you are a Christian, dearly beloved, if you are in Christ Jesus on the day of judgment, you will never, ever, ever hear a word of condemnation. Romans 8, uh, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be condemned, believer in Jesus, when that final courtroom is called into session. And that's tremendous news, isn't it? Because of the righteous life and the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are, you are forgiven and reconciled and accepted by the Heavenly Father and cannot ever be condemned. But you can and you ought to live for the commendation of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a word of commendation to be spoken over the people of God, Paul is saying, on that great day. No word of condemnation, but a word of commendation for the people of the Lord Jesus. And so having secured the assurance of no condemnation through faith in Jesus Christ, we are being called, brothers and sisters, to pursue wholeheartedly the word of commendation by faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, to live for the smile of our Heavenly Father, to look forward to, 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 to seek after the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so may the Lord help us, may the Lord strengthen us, give us the grace to Rest in the assurance of the reality of no condemnation. Uh, to live joyfully then for the good opinion of the living God alone. And for his final commendation on that great day. And may he set us free altogether from the tyranny of the opinion of men. And the tyranny of our own faulty judgments. May we know, as one person has called it, the freedom of self-forgetfulness so that we are set free for service in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do confess that so often the opinions of others and our own estimation of ourselves has governed our lives. We pray that more and more... Instead, you would teach us to live for you alone, to live for your glory, the exaltation of Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.